Last month, we celebrated my five-year-old's birthday, and uh, Madeline got a lot of different gifts, but one of our friends got a gift for, for her, but really for our whole family. He, he thought that this would be nice for Maddie, and Maddie has some physical limitations that uh, she can't move very well, and so he thought that we would benefit from having this Amazon Echo Show. And Amazon Echo Show, if you're not familiar, it's, it's, a, it's a little electronic, a little machine, a little tool that you can talk to and ask it to do certain things, and you can actually use it to program a lot of your house for, for turning lights on and turning lights off and stuff like that. And, and there's lots of fun things you can do. You can ask Alexa, who's the voice behind Amazon Echoes, uh, you can ask Alexa to tell you a joke, um, or to ask, you can ask her what the weather is, you can ask her for a recipe, um, you can even... T- uh, um, and then every morning, it scrolls through the, the most recent news stories, and it kind of gives you a little cue as to what to say. Try asking Alexa this. So one time I was in the room next to the kitchen, and I hear my eight-year-old Caroline go, Alexa, tell me that weird news story. So I like run in the kitchen because I'm like, what weird news story? There's a lot of weird news stories out there. What weird news story is she going to hear? And it was this story. It was a Massachusetts doctor who uh, was pleading with CVS, the pharmacy, to change its on-hold jingle because he said he couldn't take the music anymore. He spent so much time. Dr. Stephen Schulzman, a child psychiatrist at MassGen, he wrote this. He said, I hear it in my sleep. And I hear it when I go running. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night humming that melody. It haunts me day and night. It's not healthy. And I know I'm a doctor. (laughs) Dear CVS, please change your hold music, he wrote. Please do the right thing. And they did. They changed their hold, me, hold music for Dr. Stephen. This, this morning, we're continuing our series of the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at a parable. A parable is a story that Jesus told that is intended to impress a truth upon the hearts of the listeners. And in this story, we, we meet a woman who pleaded for someone to do the right thing. Do the right thing. And uh, what she wanted done is a lot more important than having the on-hold music at CVS changed. But let's read the story together in Luke 18. I'm reading to you from the ESV. It's in your handout. It's also on the screen behind me. It says this, that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pray, always to pray, and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, this is Jesus speaking, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, He will bring justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In this story, we learn three important truths about prayer. Three things that should be true of me when I pray. And the first one is this. When I pray, I need to be humble in the right way. Prayer is an act of humility. 
humble in the right way. There is, when you read this story, there's an immediate danger to interpreting, understanding, and applying this parable. A lot of people get this wrong because you read the story and you go, oh, well, this is obvious. Here's what I need to do in prayer. I need to approach God the exact same way this widow approached the unrighteous judge. And that's wrong, actually. Because this parable, the type of parable that this is, this is a parable of contrast. And there's two clear examples of contrast in this parable. And the first one is this. God, the God we serve, is not like this judge. God is good and gracious. Think about this judge. He cared nothing for this woman. When he finally caved, it wasn't because she turned his heart. It wasn't because she convinced him. He just said, man, this woman is annoying. And I just got to get rid of her. Actually, if you look into the Greek, the, the, the imagery there is that she was giving him a black and blue eye. She just kept coming after him over and over like a boxer, just kind of leading and tapping and tapping and just kind of wearing him down. And so when he finally acted, it wasn't out of interest for her. His actions were out of self-interest for him, to give him relief, not to give her relief. Our God is not that way. Our God cares about us. He knows about us. He doesn't simply act out of self-interest. He acts out of interest in, for us. So God is not like the judge. But secondly, we are not like this widow. We're not this nameless widow because we are the elect. We are the chosen ones. We are known and loved by the God that we approach in prayer. So what does this mean? When we pray, we have to be on guard against two different types of false humility, two different types of what I would call counterfeit humility, both of which are rooted in a seriously damaging misunderstanding of the God that we're praying to. And the first one is this. It's a humility that's actually, I'm gonna call it a self-condemnation humility. It's groveling before God saying, I am worthless, I am worth nothing, I mean nothing to you, I have no real relationship with you, so I'm just gonna nag you like this widow, nag the unjust judge, and then maybe God will get so annoyed by my asking, he will give in. Every day when I pick up my uh, 10-year-old and my 8-year-old from school and they, they get in the car, the first thing we do, first, every day the first thing we do is this. Girls, tell me three things about your day. And they know the routine. Sometimes if I don't even ask, they just start in. You know, my first thing is, you know, they just kind of start. And so they're giving me what? Information. They're informing me of their day. And by the way, they're amazing at giving me the least amount of information possible. Like, I'm always having to ask follow-up questions. And so they're giving me information. And then other times, when they're, when they're not informing me, most of the time when they're talking to me, they're trying to convince me. Dad, will you let me download this app onto, my, onto our family you know, iPad? Or, Dad, can I watch this? Can I go here? Can I do this? And so when I think of the majority of my conversations with my daughters, they fall into two, one of two categories, informing me or trying to convince me. And I think even as we get older and we think of our conversations with each other, not much changes. Most of our conversations with each other are we're either trying to inform people or we're trying to convince them of something. And sometimes at the exact same time, I'm trying to convince you that the information I'm giving you is interesting, right? What happens when all of our prayer is informing and convincing? God, here's what's happening, and I really need you to care. The scriptures tell us, Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 8, your God already knows what you need before you even ask. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't cast your cares upon him, because you should. But it means that in prayer, your primary task is not to inform God. He knows. He's aware. He's been paying attention. But you also don't have to convince him. When Peter said, cast all your cares upon God, he gave us an indicative, a why, for the imperative, 
the what. He said, cast all your cares upon God. Why? Because he cares for you. And so here's what we know about the God that we approach in prayer. He's not the unrighteous judge. Why? Because our God already knows and he always cares. And when you have that at the heart of your prayer life, that you're going before God, God, you already know what I need, and you always care for me, it changes the way that you pray. In fact, in verse 1, when they give us the reason behind the parable, Jesus gave them this parable, so that, told them this parable so that they would always pray and, and not lose heart. That word, that phrase, always pray in the Greek, it's not a continuous, nagging, insecure sort of prayer, as if by more prayers, God's heart will be turned. That's actually a very pagan approach to prayer. By doing more things and and praying necessarily more stuff that God now maybe will pay attention to me and hear me. But when it says always pray in the text, here's what it means. Praying consistently and persistently with hope, confidence, and expectation. So it's not a self-condemnation humility. Second type of humility it's not is it's not a self-righteous humility. Sometimes people pray with this sort of heart attitude. God, have you, been, have you paid attention? I've been really good this week. I've been so good this week. And so now, because I've been so good, I've got a few ways you can prove your goodness to me, right? And so uh, I'm worthy, and now you owe me. We're not going to read it this morning, but right after this parable, Jesus tells another parable, and they're both about prayer. And in this other parable, he talks about two different people who come into the temple to pray. And one of them, who's the Pharisee, comes in and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those sinners out there. Thank you that I'm not like, and it's a self-righteous sort of humility. God, I thank you that I'm better than everyone else. And if we have a self-righteous, false humility in our prayers, here's what it'll lead us to. It'll lead us to a sense of, self, a, a sense of entitlement. We'll have an entitlement mindset. And by the way, have you noticed that people who have an entitlement mindset are some of the most unbearable people to do life with? Some of those unbearable people to be around. But also, if you have an entitlement mindset, then suffering and sorrow and loss and grief, it will be unbearable for you. I mean, suffering, sorrow, loss, grief, very difficult for all of us. But when you feel like you deserve something better than you got, it's unbearable. You don't know what to do with it. And so, in summary, if we have a self-condemnation sort of humility, it's not really praying, is it? It's nagging. It's begging. And if we have a self-righteous humility, it's not really praying either. It's demanding. It's bartering and bargaining. So what does it look like to be humble in the right way? And this is it. Being humble in the right way is having this heart position that says, I can confidently approach in prayer, but not on the basis of my work, on the basis of the work of another. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why at the end of prayers we say, in Jesus' name we pray Amen. It's not just something that we say out of habit. It's not something we just say because we, but it's actually the very foundation for why we can even approach a holy God. We can't approach in our own names. Our names don't stand up before the holiness of God. But in Jesus' name, based on his work, based on his performance, based on his perfect life that's been given to those who trust and believe in him, we can approach. And so what it does is it gives us two things at the same time that are very hard to have at the same time. It gives us confidence and humility. Confidence to approach, but humility because we know we didn't get ourselves in. We're seated at the table, but not because of us, because of Jesus. And God's really been speaking to me a lot about prayer as a pastor and as a leader. And he's been convicting me of this thought that one of the surest signs of pride in the life of a believer is prayerlessness. Are you wondering if you're a prideful person or not? Are you a praying person or not? 
One of the surest evidences of pride is prayerlessness because we don't pray when we lose our sense of dependency on him for everything. And we're overconfident in ourselves and we're overdependent on ourselves. And how many of you have noticed that when things are good, your prayer life's not as great And when things are really struggling, your prayer life kind of ratchets up. And I think there's something natural to it, and there's no shame or guilt in that, but we have to pay attention to that because it tells us something about our motivation in prayer. God, I don't really want you. I want what you can do for me. And it's a a unhealthy way to approach in prayer, and it's a prideful way. That's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer said, he taught us to pray, give us this day our, or give us this day our daily bread. Because bread really is the most basic need, food. That sort of, he didn't say, give us this day a perfectly cooked ribeye, which I, would have, I, I pray that every day anyway. But, you know, <laughs> give us this day uh, a dozen chicken wings or a meatball sub. Just give us our bread. Why? Because it's the most basic foundational thing. It's like Jesus is teaching us for the most basic thing in your life you need to depend upon God for. And not just every now and then, but give us this day, every single day, our daily bread. Because everything's a gift from him. You know, even your ability and desire to pray is a gift from him. If you have any desire to know God, to serve God, to live for God, it's a gift of grace that he's extended to you. We must be humble in the right way. Second thing that we learn from this story is this, not just humble in the right way, but we also, when we pray, we must be honest in the right direction, honest in the right direction. So this woman was a widow Here's what we know about widows from the Old Testament. They were um, among the most defenseless in Hebrew society. The Old Testament refers to widows as being oppressed, taken advantage of. They're often legal victims, which was the case here. This was a, there was some sort of, this woman was some sort of a legal victim here, and she was asking for justice against her adversary. In Israel at this time, a, a woman's identity and even her link to the outside community, really her bridge to help, depended largely on a male family member. It's just the way it was then. So if you were a young girl, you relied upon your father. Uh, if you were a wife, it was your husband. And if you were a widow, it was your son. But this widow doesn't seem to have any of those options because she's not going to them, is she? It says in the story, she keeps coming to the unrighteous judge. And she, she comes to the point where he says, she's bothering me and she beats me down by her continual nagging and coming, beating me black and blue over and over. And we have to ask the question, why did this widow keep going to this judge? He's unrighteous. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear man. Why did she keep going to him? It's not because he was good. He wasn't. It's not because he cared. He didn't. It's because simply this, she knew he's the only one that can help. He's the judge. This is a legal issue. He was the judge probably in the town that she was in. He was the only judge, and she knew he's the only one that can help. And in our hour of need, when we face crisis, when we face challenges, who or what do we turn to first? Who or what do we keep going to? For many of us, prayer is a last resort, not a first response. And God is teaching us here something. He's saying, when you treat prayer like a last resort and not a first response, when you go elsewhere looking for help, instead of coming to me, the only one who can actually help you, what's happening in that moment is you're being honest in the wrong direction. You're directing your honesty and your need, but you're directing it in the wrong way. Prayer, by the way, is a place for raw honesty. Sometimes we think like, I gotta clean up my prayer so that God will like me more, or that he'll respect me more. I gotta use the right words. I gotta use fancy words. I can't, I can't just be myself. But you know, if you go into the Psalms and you read uh, the, the songs that David wrote and Asaph wrote and, and Moses wrote, you'll begin to realize like, these guys were honest. 
I mean, they just let God have it. And God can handle your honesty. By the way, he already knows it. So what's the point in not just saying it? And so in prayer, prayer is a place for raw honesty. And most of us have made it a place of restrained piety. Like I'm gonna put my best self together so that I can approach God. And God's just saying, just come as you are with your honesty, with your questions, with your struggles, with your doubts. But often we, we spare God our honesty and we pour it out on everybody else. So we direct our honesty. Instead of directing it upward, we direct it outward. And it, it turns into uh, complaining. And it can turn into gossip and slander. Instead of directing our honesty upward, we direct it inward. And it turns into anxiety and worry and anger. So in prayer, we need to learn to be honest in the right direction. Take your most honest thoughts and direct them towards God because he can hear and he can respond. And then the last thing that we learned from this story is that not only are we supposed to be humble in the right way and honest in the right direction, but lastly, we need to be hungry for the right things. Hungry for the right things. And ever since Jennifer greeted us this morning, some of us have been hungry for corned beef and cabbage, but that's not what I'm talking about. Hungry for the right things. Okay, another, another major misunderstanding of this parable. Let me clarify this. This parable does not give us free license to apply the principle here to any single prayer request we can think of. So the principle in this parable to ask, to persist, to continue to ask, this is not for like, I need a parking spot at the mall, God. That sort of prayer. Or, God, uh, I want you to help me pass a test that I didn't study for. Or make that person fall in love with me. Like, those sort of, it doesn't just apply in those situations. We can't lose sight of what this woman actually prayed for. What did she actually pray for? What was she asking for? She was asking for justice. For restorative justice. She asked for justice. And isn't it interesting that even the unrighteous judge knows that it's justice. Because when he finally concedes, he says what? I'm going to give her justice. He knew all along it was the just thing to do. He just didn't want to do it because she couldn't bribe him. She couldn't pay him off. She didn't have any influence. She didn't have any power. But she was looking for justice, not just for her, not just for stuff she wanted, but for God to make things right. And we know that this is what the story is about because when Jesus connects the parable to what life looks like, he continues the theme of justice, doesn't he? In verse eight, he says, will not God give justice? This is about praying for justice. Now, what does it mean to pray for justice? And the only way we know the answer to that is if we read the end of the previous chapter, chapter 17. We won't read it now. I'll encourage you to read it later so you can check me up on this. But in the passage right before Jesus tells this story, the people come and say, Jesus, tell us about the kingdom, your kingdom, your reign, your rule. It's coming, right? When's it coming? And Jesus says two things to them that seem to contradict each other. The first thing he says is this, my kingdom, it's already here. It's in your midst. It's right in you. It's around you. It's here. But then he also says, and it's not here yet. Now, what do we do with that? And this is where we understand this really important truth about the kingdom of God, that it's already, but not yet. When Jesus came, he didn't just come to die on the cross for our sins, which he did, of course. He came to inaugurate a kingdom. His reign, his rule extended over all of creation over all of our lives. And he's sort of inaugurated it. It's here, but it's not fully here yet, is it? All you gotta do is read the newspapers. All you gotta do is look at what happened recently in New Zealand. All you gotta do is look at the tragedies in our own communities and you realize this is not his kingdom. This is not his perfect reign. This is not his perfect rule. So what do we do? We pray. We pray for his kingdom. And when Jesus ends the story, he says, I tell you, God will give justice to them speedily. 
Now, let's be honest. For some of us, it's not fast enough. Did you notice the question there? Will he delay long over them? You ever ask that question about a situation in your life? God, will you delay long? We don't know God's timing. We don't understand that a, you know, a thousand days or a thousand years is to a day. We don't really know all that. But when, when Jesus said that he will give justice speedily, here's what it meant. This will help, I think. Jesus wasn't saying you're gonna get it right away or you're gonna get it when you want it. Here's what he said. Jesus is saying that when the time comes, you can be certain of speedy justice. When his kingdom comes, when the time comes, you can be certain of speedy action. So what is justice? What are we praying for as the people of God when we pray for justice? We're praying for a time when every broken thing will be restored to wholeness. We're praying for a time where everything will be made new, when every sad thing will come untrue, and when every wrong thing will be made right, the righteousness of God, the justice of God to reign and to rule, it's the kingdom. And that's why in the Beatitude, Jesus taught us that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And sometimes we reduce that text to simply meaning, blessed are those who wanna behave well, who wanna live right, who wanna be good moral citizens. It's way more than that. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are those who will not be satisfied by anything other than the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, where the reign of Jesus is extended overall. And we're not there. We're in the midst of it. So what do we do? We pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And here's something that we learn in the New Testament. Prayer in the New Testament when the authors of the New Testament talk about prayer, it's never passive. It's always active. So it's this. It's not just asking for justice. It's acting for justice. Not just asking. It's also acting. Not just sitting back and saying, God, come on, show up, do something, make this right. I see this wrong in my neighborhood. I see this wrong in my community. I see this injustice in our country. God, would you do something? It's saying, God, would you do something through me? Could I partner with you in seeing your kingdom come? to be a part of seeing the kingdom established, made visible in our midst. As I was preparing this message, I was listening to a song by an artist named Andrew Peterson, and he wrote this song called Rise Up. And I love the opening lines to his song. He said this, every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. The king of love one day will crush them all. Every sickness, every sorrow, every grief, every struggle, every frustration, every anxiety. How many of you would say this morning, I can't wait for the king of love to crush them all, to crush them all. And here's our prayer. God, start by crushing it inside of me. Because not the problems are not outside of me. The problem often is right here inside of me. So God, start by crushing inside of me the things that are not of your kingdom. Crush in me the things that do not honor you, that do not glorify you. Jesus is teaching in this parable that continual, consistent, persistent prayer for the kingdom of God to be increasingly seen until it fully comes. It's not only the evidence of faith that he's hoping to see when he returns, but it's the means of building faith until he returns. So prayer is not just a way of displaying faith, it's a way of building faith within us. And when he returns, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied and he will bring his justice and he will bring his reign and he will bring his rule and he will bring it certainly and he will bring it speedily. 
And in that day, as the Old Testament prophet says, we'll look at him and we'll say, this is our God. This is our God. And this is his kingdom. And so we pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you return, would you find faith? Not just the faith that asks, but the faith that acts. Not the faith that sits back, but the faith that steps out, meets needs, finds needs, and serves people. So as I close, let me make two points of application. First is this. What does this mean for you personally? I think what it means for you is you need to look at your prayer life. I have to look at my prayer life. All week as I've been preparing this message, God's been convicting me, convicting me. He's like, you're a pastor, and you have, there's still prayerlessness in your life at times. There's still areas of your life where you're not praying. And, and, if, and I think it, this is just my honest assessment based on what I know about myself, what I know about people. There are people who show up in church every Sunday morning that don't have any prayer life. Just don't. Do not pray with any regularity other than maybe blessing your meal. And I'm not here to put shame and guilt on you. I'm here to say, what's the next step for you? How do you humble yourself? How do you direct your honesty in the right way? And how do you, how do you hunger for the kingdom and pray? And earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, a leader was interviewing a guy named James Clear who just written a book on habits. And what he said was fascinating to me because, you know, all of us are always trying to create new habits, whether it's exercise more or eat less or watch less TV or, or be kinder to people. And, and uh, he said two things that stuck with me. Number one, when you're setting goals, focus less on the goal you're setting and more on the type of person you want to become. So instead of saying, here's the things I want to do, say, here's the person I want to be. So saying, I want to go to the gym every day. Say, I want to be the type of person who cares about my health, invests in my future that way. He said that. But then the second thing he said was, a lot of times we don't follow up on our goals and we don't set new habits because our goals are not realistic and we get discouraged. We try to swing for the fences. And so here's what I don't want you to do, unless the Spirit is very clearly telling you this this morning. If you don't pray at all, don't go out of this place today going, that's it, an hour a day, an hour a day, I'm gonna pray. I'm telling you, it's going to be a struggle, right? That's not how habits get developed. So here's what he said. And I'll just share this with you. Very practical. He said, take whatever your goal is and reduce it to something you can do in minutes. He told a story about a man who wanted to start losing weight. And he never went to the gym. He said, well, start going to the gym. But every time you go to the gym for the first, I forget how long, only go for five minutes. You're only allowed to work out for five minutes. And I was like, I love that plan. I'm going to sign up. I'm sign, I'm sign up for that plan. And the man was like, how is this ever going to help me lose weight? But what he was helping him do is he was helping become the type of person that goes to the gym every day. And so the man did this. He'd go just, he'd work out for five minutes and he would leave. He did it for weeks. The guy ended up losing 100 pounds because he set a habit. So what does this mean for prayer? This week, if prayer is a real struggle for you, and if we're honest, it's probably a real struggle for 95% of us. Would you pray for two minutes every day? Two minutes every day. In just a moment, as Lauren's playing, we're gonna pray in this room for two minutes. I'm gonna give you a head start on your journey. Two minutes. Some of you are like, I play for two hours every day. Well, God bless you. But for the rest of us, two minutes every day and commit yourself starting today through next Sunday. We can, we can do two minutes, right? We can find two minutes. So let's become the people who pray. We're gonna do that in just a minute. So that's what it means for us as individuals. But what does it mean for us as a church? I just wanna share this with you. As we in three weeks, as we go to two services and we make space 
for more people to come and to grow and we lead up towards Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and I know both services on Resurrection Sunday, this is gonna be amazing. It's gonna be so full in here for both services and we're so excited for that. But here's what God's been convicting me of this life, this week as I've been studying this text. There's a lot of things we've been doing to go to two services. We've been planning, we've been working, we, people are going to serve more. People are going to give more. We've been leading the teams through this. We're going to preach more. We're going to sing more. All these things are going to happen. But the Spirit was speaking to me this week as I study this passage. For, as a church, you can't plan your way through this. You can't work your way. You can't serve your way. You can't give your way. You can't lead your way. You can't preach your way. You can't sing your way. You got to pray your way. We got to pray our way through. We need to be a people of prayer. We're not, as we head towards two services, as a church, we need to be focused on coming together and praying. And, and what's what we have these monthly things on the first Sunday of every month. And I want to see the place full on Sunday nights, not just so that there's people here, but because it will mark us as a church that prays, as a people who care, who depend on God and say, God, if you don't breathe on what we're doing, it won't work and it won't matter and in eternity we'll look back and it will be the biggest waste of everyone's time. But God, if your spirit will breathe on what we're doing, then we know that there'll be lasting fruit and we'll see gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area, which is our vision. That's what we'll believe for. So would you join with me? Would you partner your heart with me and say, let's be a church that prays. Let's be a church that seeks God. Persist. God, let your kingdom come in clay. Let your kingdom come in Liverpool, in Baldensville, in East Syracuse, in North Syracuse, wherever you live, let your kingdom come.